Today's reading is going to be taken from Matthew chapter 6. We encourage you to read the underlined portions with us. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Is there another screen? There you go. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. All right. We look great. That's half the battle. That's what my mom always says. So, so far, so good. Um, before I get going, it's been a crazy week for my wife and little baby who's been running around. Uh, we just moved into our, our first house, uh, bought a home first night in the new crib last night, first sleep, uh, which was great. Blakely slept through the night. Praise God. That's what we were praying for above all else. Um, but in a, in a weird way, this is a, it was a symbolic thing for us to purchase a house here in Columbia. Uh, in the fall, Kayla and I had been kind of floating in a way. We'd been kind of curious about where we were going to end up uh, in our future, uh, considering going a couple different places. And, uh, well, we got plugged into this church uh, late in the fall, uh, into the winter. And uh, so much of us buying a home and planting roots here in Columbia is because of you guys. So just on behalf of Kayla and me, we, we, we truly love you. Not to get emotional, jeez. Uh, but we love you. Like, we've never experienced church life like this. We've never felt so known and so loved. So uh, we're really, really grateful, jeez, uh, for you as a church. So <laughs> you look great. That's half the battle. Um, anyways, uh, so I'm really, I'm, we are. We're, we're truly thankful to be a part of this community, and we really do love you guys. Um, we've been in a series uh, just through the Lord's Prayer, talking about how to pray. Um, I'm always fascinated of all the things that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to do. Uh, they could have said, Lord, would you teach us how to walk on water? Lord, would you teach us how to turn more water into wine? Praise God. Um, no, he didn't, they didn't say that. They said, of all the things, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus' response is this prayer, uh, a prayer that we've heard for years and years from football locker rooms uh, to before meal prayers. Uh, we, we've heard this prayer, the, the, our Father, the Lord's Prayer, and we've been walking through it. Um, and in a way, prayer is really, really simple. It's just us communicating with God. Um, but what this prayer does is it's almost looking at the simple practice of prayer uh, from a different vantage point each week. Um, so we're just peering at the same thing almost through a different window, looking at it again and again. And this week, we're going to talk about confession and forgiveness. Um, he just read, what we read was, forgive us, Lord, for our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, so this morning, I'm, I'm just going to talk about seeing our real self. 
that, that, that true confession comes as we see ourselves as we actually are, not our perception of ourselves or the one we perceive ourselves to be or we uh, want others to perceive us as, seeing our real selves, how Jesus responds to that, and then how this affects the way that we live. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful for the moments that we shared this morning. Uh, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the gift of prayer, uh, that you are uh, so much holier than we are, but you uh, hear our prayers. You hear every word that comes out of our mouth. Um, Father, I have nothing new to say this morning. I have nothing impressive. Uh, confession is an ancient practice that you've been teaching forever. Um, but would you just take these ordinary, average moments and just breathe on them, Holy Spirit? Would you encounter us with your love and your grace this morning? Would you search us and know us so that we can present ourselves to you and experience your grace and experience your love in a whole new way? Would you break through into our hearts this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so when I was in second grade, uh, I moved schools. We moved across town, and uh, I moved from Edmondson Elementary to Sarah Milner. And uh, there, there's two options as a second grader uh, when you move, socially speaking. Uh, you either become the outcast, of the new guy, or you become the cool new guy, right? Like, there's the two options. There's no in-between as a new kid in second grade. And, uh, well, I was the cool new guy, right? Like, I just had it going on. Uh, second grade, I would say, was my peak. Like, I peaked in second grade. Academically, peaked. Straight A's. Great. It was downhill from there. Socially, new guy, cool, good at sports, whatever in second grade they value. I had it. Socially, peaked. Uh, <laughs> whatever else. Morally, peaked for sure. Like it was downhill from there. Um, I actually remember this, this moment. I loved my second grade teacher. Like I loved her so much. Mrs. Paulson, like my favorite. I, I still love her. If I could write her an email, uh, I would, but I don't know uh, where she is. But I love Mrs. Paulson. And uh, I remember in second grade, I had this, this, uh, this other, one of my classmates uh, came up to me, and I don't know, second grade news is like losing your tooth, right? Like that's a big deal. So this girl, Erica Van Horn, uh, she came up to me and said, Cam, I lost my tooth. And I was like, Erica, that's great. I'm super pumped for you. Like really happy that you lost your tooth. Uh, but she did this like kind of weird thing where she just kind of kept telling me again and again and again. And she kept telling me, Cam, I lost my tooth. Cam, I lost my tooth. And I kept telling her, look, Erica, that's great. I'm super happy for you, girl. Like I get it. Like those things hurt when they come out. I'm happy. That's awesome. But she just kept going and kept telling me, Cam, I lost my tooth. Cam, I lost my tooth. And uh, I, I consider myself generally slow to anger, much like the Lord. Uh, but I finally snapped. Like I had enough. And uh, I grabbed her by the shoulders, and I began to just shake her and say, Erica, I know, I know, I know, you lost your tooth, I get it. And in that moment, my teacher, who I loved and I appreciated so much, she snapped and she looked at me and said, Cam, I don't know if you guys had these, but she said, Cam, refocus. Oh, this is the worst moment of my second grade year. But I remember I had to go home and tell my dad, I had to tell my parents that I blew it, that I got to refocus. And it was the, it, it, all jokes aside, it was the first like tangible memory or conscious memory that I have of guilt or shame or embarrassment. Um, I also remember in high school, uh, they would put these progress reports out for athletes who were like at risk academically. I said it was downhill. Um, and uh, I must have just taken like three weeks off of school. I don't know how this happened. Uh, but I had a teacher, or I had my, my, my men's basketball coach called me into his office and was like, Cam, I got the progress report, bro, and you have four Ds. I was like, ooh, that's not good. Um, and I remember that he was going to have to tell, he's going to have to say, my dad was a coach at the school, that my dad was going to get that same exact progress report. And I remember all the thoughts flooding through my head of embarrassment and shame and guilt and this perception that I had as this good kid, the coach's kid, the teacher's kid, all of a sudden was Cam 4Ds. And I remember feeling shame and embarrassment. 
And then I remember in college, found myself driving home from a, from a practice uh, with a teammate when all of a sudden it just spilled out of us as we, as we were practicing really hard at the next uh, one moment, the next moment we were in the car crying together as we were just confessing that we'd both been struggling and borderline addicted to pornography. And, and while it was of the more mild variety for sure, uh, what's the difference really, right? And I say addicted, it was like the first time that I felt like I didn't want to do something and I hadn't, didn't have power to not do it. And we confessed and we cried, two 22-year-old dudes in the car together listening to some kind of instrumental music. But I remember feeling the embarrassment of that. And although it's been years since I've had that kind of struggle in this area, I feel more and more convinced that I need to share that part of my story because it's in our weaknesses, not our strength, that God tends to meet us and use us, that God's power is made perfect. And even now, it might appear more subtle, but it's really not. I've always struggled to be dependable and responsible, and it continues to rear its face. It continues to rear its ugly head at times and uh, in, in relationships. I, I oftentimes don't text people back or get a phone call and don't call people back. Uh, it's shown itself in my marriage. And then even recently, I had a friend who was applying for a job, and I had to fill out his application, and I didn't do it in time. And this job that he was so excited about, he had to wait months to actually step into it because of my irresponsibility. See, confession tends to get less and less cute the older we get. And maybe because of this, the older we get, the less we confess. Not to mention that we live in a culture that promotes a profound denial of the reality of sin in our lives. The, the, universally, the only universally agreed upon sin in our modern culture is you calling anything that I do sin. That's the only definition we have for sin. And this is a dangerous place to be. Let me give you a picture. Uh, there's this story in the, uh, in the book called The Ragamuffin Gospel uh, of this, of this uh, the author, Brennan Manning, he writes it. He's in this alcoholic uh, rehabilitation center, and he's sitting in a circle with a bunch of people who have at least confessed that they have some kind of problem with alcohol. And uh, he's, he tells the story of the facilitator uh, picking on this guy, Max, and he says, uh, he just puts Max on the hot seat. And he starts to ask him, Max, how long have you been an alcoholic? Max, you know, pushes back and says, well, that's a bit unfair, right? Like, I like to drink. I like to have my drinks. Uh, I, I have several throughout the day, but, but I'm not an alcoholic. And he continues to ask him questions. How, how many drinks a day? Do you hide stuff in the garage? Do you drink uh, in secret? Do you drink in the office? And Max continues to push back and rebuttal all the different comments that the, facil the facilitator has. And then finally the facilitator says, Max, what happened last Christmas? And Max says, well, I, I do remember being a little bit thoughtless and a little bit careless and unkind to my daughter last Christmas. And the facilitator then pulls out a phone, puts it on speakerphone, calls Max's wife, and asks, ma'am, can I, can I ask you about what happened last Christmas? And I'll read you her response. It says this, a soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. It seems like it just happened yesterday. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of earth shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the whole store. And that is exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the cork and bottle, that's a tavern a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he would be right out. It was clear and extremely cold that day, about 12 degrees below zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon and silence. Yes, the sound of a heavy breathing across the recreation room. Her voice grew faint. She was crying, my husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in the euphoria of their reunion, he lost track of time, purpose, and everything else, and he came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. 
He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. When she got her to the hospital, doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger of her right hand and she'll be deaf for the rest of her life. And at that point, in the middle of the group, Max drops to the ground and just begins to sob hysterically. Because for the first time, Max was coming to grips with who he actually was. He was coming to grips with the truth about himself. See, he told himself so many lies. He'd given himself so many perceptions of who he was and who he appeared to be. And he could not see the truth that was within him. And until he admitted the truth, healing was not possible for him. And this is the lie of our modern culture, that, that, that to main, maintain perception is good enough, that I can just ignore reality, that as long as I can appear a certain way, as long as I can lie, even to myself, as long as I can lie to myself, I'm good. But it ignores the deep wounds within us. And the problem with that is it also denies the deep longing of every human heart that the deepest longing at the very core of who we are is to be fully known and fully loved, to be loved completely, but also to be known completely. So to ignore the deep darkness inside of us, to, to, to just look at our perception and how we perceive ourselves to be and how we present ourselves to be is to ignore the ability and to reject the ability to be fully known and fully loved. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah gets swept up in this vision of God. He, he, he's before the throne of God, and he says that uh, the hem of his garment is filling the temple. And there's these angelic beings singing back and forth, back and forth, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I don't know if you remember this in, in this scene, but, but as, as, as Isaiah sees God lifted high and mighty, his response is, woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. As he sees God as he actually is, he then has the ability to see himself as he actually is lost, unclean, broken. To see God and his holiness and his majesty and his purity is the access and, and, and the doorway into being able to see himself as he really was. Whatever perception Isaiah had built up as this prophet or this man of God in a moment, in a second, was knocked down to the ground and he was just a man who saw himself as lost unclean, broken, the reality of who he was, the truth of who he was. A.W. Tozer said a hundred years ago that the church's greatest need is to elevate and purify our view of God. And this is the way that we see the glimpse of our real self, is to see who God really is. That if we really saw God, we would not be proud, but we would be humbled. That we wouldn't be super uh, esteemed in ourselves, but we would see our deep need for something else. But that's, there's something else that Isaiah says that, that strikes me in this whole story. He says, uh, after he says, woe is me, for I am a lost and I'm a man of unclean lips, he says this, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Now this, one, this one's a little different for us, but he says, now, now, now to dwell, he says, I dwell in a people of unclean lips. To dwell is to make your home somewhere. It's, it's, to, it's to say, I'm going to identify with these people. So he says, not only am I bad, but I identify with and I, I dwell and I make my home in a people that are bad. And, and, and isn't this what Jesus teaches? I, I probably read this prayer all the time, forgive me, Lord, for I have sinned. But the prayer says, forgive us. Forgive us. And I think we can miss this a few ways. And, and I don't think these ways are, are entirely wrong, but I think that they miss the entirety of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus that we have to both confess and then receive. And I think uh, we, we can see, this is just an example, in terms of racial injustice, right? We have the forgive me, and we have the forgive them. Um, so forgive me. 
uh, majority culture people, we tend to see uh, racism or oppression or prejudice just on a personal level. Uh, and then we see, and then we will confess on a personal level. So I can hear phrases like racism or racial injustice and run through the life that I've lived and think about any thoughts or explicit things that I might, may, or may, have not, may or may have done uh, that then allow me to confess the personal things that I've done. Forgive me. And the other way that we can miss it in, ter- in, th- in this example is we can miss it in terms of uh, forgive them. We can see the systemic justice. Uh, we can see and be aware that, that, that racism isn't just a personal thing, uh, but that there's a system that's been built from the jump uh, to benefit one people group instead of the other. That it, that it wasn't good and then it went wrong, but it was built this way. And to look at that and to say, wow, how could they do that? Those, those racist lawmakers, those greedy people, Lord, forgive them. Lord, change their hearts, forgive them. And while neither one of these is entirely wrong, they're just not the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, forgive us. It's to take responsibility, like Isaiah. Lord, I am of a people of unclean lips. And I think it's easy to identify with the proud parts of your heritage, but it's really hard to acknowledge and to accept the responsibility of the negative ones. Jamar Tisby says it this way, American Christians have never had trouble celebrating their victories, but honestly, recognizing their failures and inconsistencies, especially when it comes to racism, remains an issue. So there are many good victories that are worthy of celebration, and we should celebrate. But there's also, we need to be aware of the realities of the darkness that we've also inherited and say, forgive us. It's to identify as a people. And our individualistic society, our individualistic culture that's so shaped and formed our hearts, it also informs and forms the way that we pray and the way that we confess, forgive me, forgive us. Okay, so now we're sitting here saying, okay, God is perfect, Cam. I am not. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've come to the reality of who I am. How do I respond? How do I step into this? So let's just, let me tell you another story. Uh, In John chapter 8, there's a woman who's ripped out of her bed and thrown at the feet of Jesus. And this woman, well, she, uh, <laughs> she, she finds herself in the only place that she finds herself alive, with him. She, she never thought that she would be an adulteress. She never thought that she would be the one who, who would sneak out after her kids went to school and would go to, uh, go to this guy's house. But there she was again with him in the place where she felt uh, the life and the, and the energy and the joy that she once did. And she finds herself there. And when she's there, this time the priest comes in. The priest that heard her confessions, the priest that baptized her, uh, the priest uh, that, that, that prays for her and sees her on a weekly basis, he walks in. And he grabs her by the hair and he brings her out in front of all the Pharisees, in front of all the lawmakers, and throws her at the feet of Jesus and says this, the law says death penalty. Stone her. Jesus, what do you say? Rabbi, new, hot, cool rabbi, what do you say? Trying to uh, oppose Jesus. trying to It's it's the perfect setup for Jesus between the law, are you going to say what you're going to do, or are you going to forgive this one too? It's the perfect setup between God's holiness and the purity and the perfection of Jesus and our brokenness. And Jesus bends over and he starts to write in the sand. What? We're not so sure. And then he says, all right, go ahead. Go ahead, stoner. But you who, you who have no sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And somehow, empathy begins to creep in these guys' hearts. And one by one, the stones drop to the ground. And then it's just her and Jesus. 
and he's bent over and she looks up into the eyes of love and love only and love completely. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Who has condemned you? Well, neither do I condemn you. And the fascinating thing to me about this moment is that this moment would be the story that she would tell, the story that we're reading and talking about right now that she would tell for the rest of her life. And in that moment, the place of her greatest fear and shame and greatest failure also becomes the greatest prize of mercy and grace. The very part of her story that she would rather edit out becomes the part that she can't tell her story without. Because that's the kind of author that God is. God is, God is not an editor, but he's a redeemer. He's the one that takes the, the moments that we would rather cut out of our lives, and he takes them, and he redeems them. The ones that we'd rather hide away, he uses to display his great victory and his great grace and his great love. And I think we tend to think that as we grow in faith, as I grow in my Christ-likeness, as I mature, it's this gradual ascent to where I eventually become at a place where I no longer need to confess. Where I'm just good. I, I've arrived. I confess less and less and less as I go. And uh, yesterday I was driving. My phone was dead. I was driving back home from dropping the U-Haul off. And I turned on the radio for like the first time in five years. Um, mm -hmm. Does anybody listen to the radio anymore? Is that not a thing? All right. <laughs> I guess that's radio's normal. Uh, anyways, uh, and I heard this guy talking about babies walking. Such a weird, I don't know what station I was on. But he was talking about babies walking. And he was saying uh, that as babies, uh, as they first learn to walk, which had me intrigued because I've got one that's learning to walk. I was like, this is cool. Uh, but he says as babies learn to walk, uh, that they, they fall on average 17 times an hour, <laughs> which is a lot. Um, but then he also said that obviously as you grow up, you fall less and less and less and less and less. And like if one of us was just to fall walking, we'd be like, whoa, that's super weird. And he also said, though, that we don't remember, like we have no conscious memory of falling. But that we get to this point where we are just good. I don't remember when I was one and I couldn't figure out how to walk, right? Like now I just walk like a normal human. And I think that sometimes we try to, ten we, we tend to carry that, that pattern into our life, that we think that, man, I used to fall. I used to really struggle again and again and again and 17 times an hour probably, but now I'm an adult and I no longer have struggle. I no longer fall. And to believe that is to believe that you no longer need your dad's help. I, I picked Blakely up again and again and again and again, and it's a joy for me to do so. See, we don't ascend to a place where we all of a sudden don't need God anymore. The Christian life is not an ascent, but it's a descent. We don't arrive at a place where we no longer need God, but he continues to take us deeper and deeper and deeper, and he reveals again and again and again just how desperate we are for him. And confession is the place we go with God. It's the deep place that we go with God. It's where we present ourselves to him as we actually are, and we allow the Spirit to search the very depths of us, and we present ourselves to him as we actually are. See, this is what the world needs right now. We need deep Christians. We don't need another Christian who appears like we have it all together on the outside or, or appears like we no longer sin or no longer need God. We need deep Christians who have gone there with God, who have revealed the darkest parts of their heart and have experienced the grace of God. The world needs deep Christians. See, in order to hear the voice that says, neither do I condemn you, you have to be able to be exposed, naked, and vulnerable before the God of love that we see in the person of Jesus. In order to experience, to hear that voice that says, neither do I condemn you, you have to be exposed. To be fully loved by God, you have to be fully known. So two, two practicals on how we can experience this. 
One is community. Uh, James chapter 5 says, confess your sins one to another and you shall be healed. So the scriptures teach that there's some kind of healing power that is released as we confess our sins one to another. And I think we have this, we have this uh, tendency to share the, the 90%, maybe the 95, maybe like the 98%, but most of us have this deep, dark 2, 3, 5% that we have hidden away. And to shortchange your confession to one another is to shortchange the healing power of the gospel, to shortchange the healing power of Jesus. To even speak in generalities is to shortchange the grace and the mercy of Jesus. So one is, is community, is to confess your sins one to another so that you shall be healed. The second one is stillness before Jesus, just to be quiet and in the presence of Jesus. And even as we sat in silence here for a little bit with our, with our uh, uh, community prayer, I'm sure some of us, we have, we have distracting thoughts. We have a bunch of things that just pop into our mind. Uh, Henry Nowen says it's like monkeys just jumping out of a tree into your head, right? Like that's how it feels most of the time when we sit down to try to pray. It's just to be quiet. But most of the time what the Holy Spirit tends to do as we sit in prayer, the things that come to your mind or come to your heart are the things that actually you actually care about, the things that you actually love. So it's, it's to, to, to sit in silence and to funnel that into confession to the Lord is to, is to feel those desires, those distracting thoughts, and to funnel them right up to the Lord in prayer. Uh, one of my favorite definitions for sin is to meet our deep needs with our own resources. And to sit before God is to allow him to reveal the things that are deep needs that we're trying to meet with our own desires and our own resources. And it's to allow him to meet our needs. I've been listening to this song lately. It's by Common Hymnal, but it, it, uh, they sing, Come tear down all the walls I've built up. Come and, tear all, come and tear down all the walls I've built up. And to sit before God and to confess is to give God access to you in the deepest parts of you, and to allow him to tear down the walls that we have built up, the huge walls that we don't allow ourselves to receive the love and the grace of Jesus that we've built up to, con to confess, is to invite Jesus to have access and to tear down those walls. So two practicals, community, sitting still before Jesus. Um, finally, I'll, cl I'll close here. As we experience forgiveness through confession, it leads to a, an entirely different life. It leads to a drastically different lifestyle. Uh, Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 7, he says that you who are forgiven little, love little. Which we understand, right? Like we understand the, the story of Isaiah, that, that as God is perfect and holy and we are not, that we, we all need not just a little forgiveness and it's not going around saying you need 10%, you need 15%, but we are all in desperate need of an utter, complete forgiveness of Jesus. So it's not saying you who are bad and you who are worse, you, you love more. It's actually saying that you who embrace, your, embrace the grace of Jesus, you who embrace forgiveness, if you do it little, you'll love little. If you do it a lot, you'll love a lot that our ability to receive the forgiveness of Jesus is deeply tied to our ability to love one another, to be people of love. And Jesus, when he said that they will know you, they will know you by the way you love one another. So our ability to love people is deeply tied to our ability to be forgiven, to confess to one another. Secondly, Jesus is teaching at the end, right? He says that, 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 that as we forgive those who trespass, again there's, there's, again, there's a deep tying thing. Jesus' teaching says, if you're not a gracious person, you have not embraced my grace. And I want to acknowledge that there are people in here with deep wounds and deep pains that some of us know nothing about. 
And Jesus, and what Jesus would teach us in this moment is to say, try harder, forgive more, do more. He would say, embrace my grace. Receive the love that I have for you. Be honest with me. Be real with me. And hear my voice that says, neither do I condemn you. So to love more, to be a more loving person is not to modify some quick behavior modifications and try harder. Jesus isn't after our actions of forgiveness. Jesus is after a forgiving heart. And the only way we can have forgiving hearts is to receive and rest in the grace that comes in Jesus. This is our power to be Jesus' people and to be transforming presence in the world. Let's pray.